I am Dr. George Stolopoulos, and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. I'm coming to you from Ramsey Land, and pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. But before we go any further, please do me a favour and hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and select the notification bell so you can be notified of future episodes. On today's episode, I'm joined by Alastair McKillen, former Commissioner for the Disability Law Commission. We'll be talking about the findings and recommendations of the Law Commission in providers of use, neglect, and exploitation of people with disabilities. I really want to thank everyone who told their stories to the Commission. And so that if any of what we talk about today causes you distress, please turn to friends or family or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, George, for having me. Hello. You've spent the last four and a half years on the Law Commission, and very recently, You've handed in the final report to the Governor-General. How did that feel? That's a really big question, George. I have very mixed feelings. Uh, Mixed feelings in the sense of, I suppose, on the one hand, relief that we have now managed to provide a comprehensive report after four and a half years of engaging with the community, in particular the disability community, to hear what needs to be heard. So I'm relieved in one way. I'm also excited in some ways about now going into the future. We now have what I think is a very clear blueprint for where change really needs to happen. As you know, over many years we've had inquiries and uh, research and lots of reviews. I hope this Royal Commission final report gives a really comprehensive, detailed blueprint. And I'm also feeling humbled. Uh, for the last four and a half years, I have listened very carefully and read and heard and saw some very shocking things. So even though I'm disabled myself and uh, with a lifelong disability and have worked in disability and human rights for many years, even I was shocked from time to time at the sheer desperation of what disabled people were telling us and what needs to change. So all up, I'm feeling optimistic enough and hopeful that this report will be groundbreaking. And I'm also looking forward to uh, seeing what happens next. I think we're all very much interested in what happens next, and we're all very, very grateful to all of the people that came and told their stories. One of your key recommendations was the establishment of a Disability Rights Act. How do you see that working, and what difference do you think a Disability Rights Act will make to the lives of people with disabilities? We heard again and again that despite best efforts and despite reform over the years here in Australia, there was still not a comprehensive, overarching legislative framework to protect the rights uh, with the human rights of disabled people. Uh, We do have the Disability Discrimination Act, and I know we might get to that um, shortly, 
that the difference between that and what we are recommending through a disability rights act is that the disability rights act is an overarching human rights framework. Now, as you know, still we have the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and that doesn't create new human rights, rather it articulates human rights from a disability lens, and that's lacking in Australia. And what we saw across all the policies and the legislation is that there is still not in, built into those things the disability approach, for want of a better phrase. So we are recommending a Disability Rights Act to literally codify and put into our domestic policies and laws the convention that we have. And many have seen the convention as aspirational. And yes, it is aspirational in many ways, but what's lacking is the legislative framework to underpin the enforcement of those human rights. What difference will it make to our lives? How will we see that making an impact? For me and for what uh, we saw and we put in the final report, by capturing human rights in a way that meets the needs of disabled people should give uh, legislative, uh, um, lawmakers, policymakers, the understanding of what we're trying to achieve when it comes to living our lives and having our human rights. I think personally, one of the challenges is that non-disabled people take their human rights for granted. We need to articulate in ways that meet our needs what those human rights can look like for disabled people. So I'm hopeful that by enacting a Human Rights Act, specifically called the Disability Rights Act, that will have an impact. Great. I also know that we currently have a Disability Discrimination Act. How will the new act be different to the DDA? The Disability Discrimination Act, and of course I'm not going to yeah, go into detail, you know, but quickly, 101. The Disability Discrimination Act is one of the suite, I guess you could call it, the non-discrimination act that we have in Australia. So the Step Discrimination Act, the Racial Discrimination Act, the Age Discrimination Act and so forth. And they're very specifically based on the non-discrimination and equality principle. When I say non-discrimination, somebody must not discriminate against a person on the basis of their disability. What we have found and, um, and we have reported on in the final report is that that's quite narrow in the sense that it doesn't then articulate the broader human rights framework. And, for example, we are recommending that the Disability Discrimination Act be amended through having a positive duty not to discriminate. What we find or found is that people have to make a complaint under the Act, the Disability Discrimination Act, or they have to ask the employer or their service provider or their school to make an adjustment, and yet there's no other way of doing so through the complaint and then through the federal court, which, as we saw, is very prohibitive in terms of access and uh, equity. That's really interesting. So you're turning it on its head, really, aren't you? You're going to say that even at the moment, disabled people need to prove that there's been discrimination. But with the change, it'll mean that the employer or the provider will need to prove that there wasn't. Is that right? That's right. We are recommending that the burden of proof actually be on the alleged discriminator. 
that for far too long we have seen the disabled person having to prove that there has been discrimination. And I think it's fair to say, George, that the courts have struggled with the interpretation of some aspects of the Disability Discrimination Act, the DDA, and it has not always been interpreted in what I believe should be the spirit of the Act, and that is to remove discrimination. So therefore, by recommending a, 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 a burden of proof, yes, an employer, for example, must prove that they haven't discriminated against the disabled person. Excellent. You're also recommending the establishment of a National Disability Commission. What will be the role of that commission? Well, the background to this, George, is that we found and we heard constantly that supporting disabled people to live their ordinary lives is piecemeal, haphazard, shambolic, there's no coordination across not only the states and territories but across the federal government as well. So it's all very haphazard, so to speak. So by having a National Disability Commission, we are recommending that this body have oversight and monitoring not only of how the government are trucking against implementing rights for disabled people, we're also recommending very specifically that they monitor our recommendation and the implementation of those recommendations. And, and also, the Commission would have a role in liaising and engaging closely with the disability community to make sure their voices continue to be heard, which we also found and were told a lot is very lacking. Disabled people basically are not at the table, so to speak, when decisions like these are made. A strong thing that came out of the report was the harmful impact of segregation and how we need to take really serious action to end segregation across all the Australian society. Why is that so important in addressing violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation? George, you've opened a really big topic here uh, and you know this is one that myself and Wanda Galberley in particular as the only two commissioners with disability out of six for us this was a deeply important issue with our lived experience we also heard again and again in public hearing in private sessions and submissions of the, of the incredibly harmful impact of what happens when you segregate people away from society. Now, there was also some differences of opinion over the meaning of segregation. As you and I know, the disability community has used the term segregation for decades to highlight the incredibly harmful impact of what happens when you segregate and separate people away from the wider community. So this is a huge issue that came up every day, every week in our World Commission, particularly for the two disabled commissioners. And I can't tell you how upsetting it was that time to sit on, for example, in private sessions where disabled people's message was very clear and simple. I wanted to go to my local school. I know I think differently. I know I might write a bit more slowly. I just wanted to go to my local school and I knew that if I could go there, I might have a better chance at life long term. So that was 
an example of the recurring theme that we heard. Just give me the right support and access. Don't shut me away. Don't put me away in an institution or an institutional-like setting because I know what I can do if I have the right support. Explain it really well. I always say it's a school myself. And the regular schools were just not accessible. But at the at the special school, I didn't have a chance to get an education. Um, it was very, very focused on therapy. And, you know, I just think it would have made things so much easier if I could go to... Um, a regular school. And I think that when we look at the aspirational approach of where we want the community to go, what we see is inclusion. We don't see separation. We want to see inclusion. So I was very happy to see that focus on segregation. So thank you for And, you know, George, I think we could talk for hours and hours and you've hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, you went to a special school and I heard repeatedly in private sessions from parents uh, probably two main things where one, my child is not learning anything there. They're just put in the corner. They're checked on periodically. Nothing is happening in terms of their learning and development. And the other thing I heard repeatedly was of the abuse, the physical and emotional abuse. Their child will come home from school more withdrawn. They will come home with bruises that couldn't be explained by the teaching staff and so forth. So for me, when we start separating people away behind closed doors, it's clear that that's where violent abuse and neglect, particularly neglect of development in education and exploitation occurred. So for some of us, for in particular Barbara Bennett, Wanda Galbally and myself, our point was very clear. For as long as we keep shutting away disabled people, particularly in the beginning of uh, life, such as education, we will never have non-disabled people learning to interact to be with their not uh, disabled, to be with their disabled peers constantly, day in, day out, and also learning to support each other. And I guess my final comment on this is: if a, if a mainstream school said to a disabled child, "You're too disabled to be here. You're not welcome here," what they really in effect they're saying really in effect, George, is that you're not welcome in society. Uh, absolutely, I, I um. I think that this is a really important issue and um, you know, the other thing that I you know, want to emphasise is that one of the reasons why uh, regular schools are not inclusive, I think, is because we have these other schools that people ascend to. So as long as we have these other schools that are special schools, the regular schools will continue to be off the hook, so to speak. And that's why it's really important that we move to a mainstream education system. Yes, and following on from that, 
yes, you identified that for as long as there is a, another option for a mainstream school to fall back on, there'll be no incentive for the mainstream school to improve, you know, and provide greater access. And George, the other recurring theme for me was in education was in private sessions in particular, many parents said they tried the local mainstream school. They tried other schools nearby in the hope that their child could go there, and yet they have pushed back. They were told their child did not fit in with that school. So ultimately, they had no choice. And when we hear people say, you have a choice, and that was the argument that some other commissioners used, there was a choice for parents to send their child to a special school. Myself and Wanda and Barbara strongly believe that is not a choice when the ultimate aim is to make mainstream school more inclusive. Let's talk about group homes. Can you talk us through the reasons why you're recommending the phasing out of group homes in 15 years? Sure, so following on from what we were just talking about in terms of education, where there are special schools and there's always an option or a, a, a pathway for special schools, as long as they remain in the system, people will fall back on that as uh, you know, the last option. And we found that in group home. I heard many parents and families and even disabled people themselves say they did not want to go into a group home. Some parents were terrified when they realised there was no other choice. So a recurring theme was no other choice to go into a group home. So again, we are following on from the philosophy of, or the principle of, for as long as there are options such as group homes, which are a segregated form of housing, we will continue to have people living in those, not by choice, but because they're forced into those settings. So that was a key reason for why we are recommending the eventual phasing out of group homes. And I, I, I think it's important to let our listeners know that we're not talking about um, people who are currently living in group homes. Um, you know, people are there and they're happy. No one's going to be forced to leave, are they? Absolutely not. And our plan, our recommended um, phasing out, recognising that there are some people who have lived all their life in a group home or in a setting where they've had no other choice but to live there. And they've told us they are happy. For us, uh, for when I say us, uh, for Barbara, Wanda, myself, and Andrea Mason, the First Nations Commissioner, we strongly believe that, for, you know, the, the, the human rights, a breach of human rights, to not be able to live in a home that meets your own needs, and also allows you to be part of the community. So that was a very important consideration for us. And we also heard of the terrible abuse. I mean, George, again, I have been in private sessions where it was heartbreaking. And, you know, parents not only did not want their child or adult child to be in a group home, they also started to feel really guilty as the months and years went by when it was apparent that their uh, adult child was not flourishing and thriving. So again, that was a a key uh, consideration for our recommended phasing out of group homes. And there's a lot of evidence, isn't there, about the abuse that goes on in those settings. So... 
we, we know that there's a better way. Yes, and we heard of lots of innovative ideas. Uh, we, for example, had the yourself and Di Winkler from the Summer Foundation in public hearing three, and gosh, sure, that sounds like such a long time ago, and, you know, it, it was. And that was really important to us, to have you and Di talk about the alternative, not only the alternative, but the innovative ways that uh, you can provide the right tailored support for individuals who have a disability that might require a particular way of living. And we also heard, as you know, in that hearing from people who had moved out of group homes into their own independent living arrangement. So for us, it was really important to hear and to research and to gather information and, and evidence. And frankly, George, the, there was no limit to the sort of innovative way that you can provide housing and living arrangement for disabled people. Currently, the NDIA makes a determination uh, that we live, and it's often based on value for money. I hear almost every week of someone who's applied for uh, housing support, um, and they're told you can't live on your own, you have to live in a group home. What implications will your report have for how the NDIA makes decisions in relation to home and living? That's a really important question, George. Of course, we all want to make sure we are spending money efficiently and in the in the way that you know show value for money. I think the deeper issue here is that when you when you do have disabled people living in the right environment where they can feel confident and excited about doing other things in life, when you have them doing that, going out into the community, going into the workforce, travelling, being with their family and friends, that's a much broader issue around community participation. So what we need to do here is get away from the narrow thinking of value for money just for that perhaps the bricks and mortar aspect of it, but the bigger picture is what does it actually mean when somebody thriving and, and then able to participate in the broader community? So that was one of the other key considerations for us. Uh, the three of us, sorry, the four of us, uh, Andrea, Barbara, Wanda and myself, was it's not just about bricks and mortar, it's about the bigger picture of human beings with disability being out in the community. Oh, 100%. Um, I'm just uh, really keen for the government to, to hear that. It's really important. And for me, it goes back to human rights. Other people without disabilities get to decide who they live with and where they live, and that right should be the same um, for people with disabilities. You've recommended the first implementation of the Yet to Be Released Home and Living Policy. What aspects of that policy appeal to you the most? For me and for the other commissioners that I've referred to, one of the things that we saw in that policy was a specific intention to move away from 
congregate or institutional life or, you know, segregated settings or a, a, a living arrangement that was segregated or congregated. So for us, that's a very pleasing sign that the NDIA is making its best effort to move away from those kind of models because as we've seen, not only in this Royal Commission, but, you know, over the many years, those settings are a hotbed of violence abuse neglect and exploitation. The other thing that was attractive to us in the NDIA Homes and Living Policy was, you know, embracing and supporting innovative ways of looking at homes and, and how to how to live how to live your life. And ultimately of course moving people away from those settings. Yeah, look I was involved in developing that policy and spent about eighteen months co-designing it, so I'm, I'm glad to see that um, you're supportive of it. Um, and on uh, November the 2nd, the Sun Foundation are going to have a uh, forum devoted to looking at um, living at home and how people can live independently. So if you want to find out more about that, go to the Sun Foundation website. Uh, may I, sorry, George, may I make a comment? You know, the Summer Foundation, as I said, you know, you appeared at one of our hearings, and it's so important that, you know, homes and living with one of the three most significant areas that we see needing reform uh, homes and living, education, and employment. And we know that once you get the housing and homes arrangement right, or a good as it can get in terms of the basic support and access, uh, everything else, in, as well as edu- education, flows from that. All right, another question, Lord, that's why I do the work that I do. <laughs> now, there are yeah. highlights some serious conflicts of interest that currently exist in the NDIS, and you're recommending the separation and an independence of support coordinators. You're saying that support coordinators must be independent. Can you explain to our listeners why independence is so important when it comes to support coordination? George, we heard again and again that when we hear of the mantra choice and control through NDI's packaging, it's often, very often, not really a choice when you have the one person, say, for example, living uh, in a group home and then everything else around them that's provided to them is by the same service provider or coordinated by the same person or same agency with no import or no say from the disabled person themselves. This is obviously a very big topic uh, in terms of, you know, what do we really mean by choice and control? And what we heard was choice and control goes beyond just not only disability services themselves, but what does that mean when you are living out in the community or should be living out in the community, the choice that you have to choose the services that best meet your needs? And I don't think it should just necessarily be from a disability perspective. Uh, when you think about the way non-disabled people live their lives and have choice and control around what they choose to have, when does you start thinking more broadly about that? 
So that's what we heard a lot about more. People with disabilities on the NDI packaging being very restricted in what they could do with that. Yeah, and also that these coordinators, if they're also uh, providing uh, direct support or they're providing housing, then suddenly, and the benefit is suddenly, they're like, oh, look, come to us and we'll do everything for you. And then it, it ends up being a very closed system. And, and that's very, very uh, concerning when it comes to being at risk of abuse and neglect. Yes, and I should add, also we heard from families who wanted their child after leaving school, whether it was a special or mainstream school, to be able to go out and start learning how to work, learning to be in the community, and yet they were literally captured by, as you've identified, the closed system, and just literally the loop. They would be picked up in a special bus, taken to a special, um, or to a charity workshop, and then perhaps taken to a day program. And I have to say, I heard some parents describe, some families describe day programs as glorified babysitting. And that really, we need to change that. We need to make sure that there are far more community options and that needs to change. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about workforce. We know that reliable and skilled support workers who've got the right attitudes and values are really, really critical. Your recommended and mandated and compulsory disability worker registration screen. In this chapter, you did refer to, uh, I read this chapter with real interest, and you referred to the views and opinions of unions, of providers, but there is no reference to the views and opinions of people with disability. Can I ask why that was? George, it was a tricky tricky one, and uh, what we were hearing was disabled people just wanted high quality, they wanted high quality support, they wanted high quality services, they wanted to also be able to manage those on their own, and whilst you're quite right in that maybe the voices, their voices weren't quite as elevated as some of us would have liked to have seen, Ultimately, when we look carefully at um, all the evidence and the information in front of us, we saw that there was a need to increase the professionalism as well as a sense of unity amongst the workforce. And George, of course, we heard that there was desperate need for more workers, desperate need for more highly qualified and supported workers. So we saw a registration scheme as, as a way of moving that conversation forward into, you know, uh, around the aspect of increasing professionalism as well as a more supportive workforce generally. A lot of people who self-managed like myself, we understand that some people want workers to be registered and they want all of the qualifications, but we want to be free to choose our support workers in line with the the principles of choice and control. Do you understand that perspective? And do you think that could be an option to uh, opt out if you wanted to employ a worker who did not uh, uh, 
qualify for this thing or who uh, was on the registration screen? Sure, so I think our flexibility in how participants or disabled people have been packaged or other support requirements should always have that flexibility, particularly when we're talking about very direct um, services. So I think where we landed in that, in that final report was to give consideration or deep consideration to the flexible way that services can be provided and ultimately there should be the choice by the participant or by the disabled person themselves how they want that support provided. The bigger issue and the bigger question is how can we encourage a more professional workforce and we are, as you can see, recommending a national registration scheme. That said, there should absolutely be, be some flexibility built into that and we did make the point that there should be consultation with disabled people about that. Excellent. The government announced that it would establish a task force that will coordinate the response to the final report. What do you think about this approach? Mm, George, I think for you and me who have worked in the disability sector and we've seen, you know, task force and working groups and reviewed over and over again, perhaps we can't help but be, I can't help but be a little bit sceptical. Having said that, if the task force is able to be uh, responsive and proactive and be given a clear mandate with some powers perhaps to compel action, I would be open to hearing what they have to say and I hope that they take this um, job seriously. I heard today that um, Professor Richard said that there will be no people disability representative organisations on the task force. What would you say to her about that? I wasn't. I was not aware of that, and I think that is fundamentally wrong. I am a bit surprised that after our final report that highlighted the need for disabled people to be in top leadership positions, you know, from chair to board to CEO to senior management, and we also heard repeatedly, repeatedly of the need for the voices of disabled people to be prominent and actually leading the discussions in any forum. So for this to not take place, George, I think is fundamentally a real concern and almost is a backward step. So what do you think of the critical actions that the government and the state, that all governments, uh, federal, states and territories, need to do between now and the 31st of March, which is the deadline for a written response? As I said earlier, we found that the way the federal and state and territorial government uh, implement disability rights and implement disability policies is haphazard, piecemeal, all over the place, not unified, so forth and so forth. I would hope that between now and the end of March next year, they would take a good look at our report and recognise that, for example, disability rights is not just about the NDIS. There needs to be a coordinated uh, approach across mainstream systems to make sure that they are accessible and inclusive. So my hope also, as you know, Jill, there are some differences of opinions and some different recommendations. I hope that the government, the federal government and the state and territory address each and every one of those recommendations and naturally I'm hoping that they will agree to all of them. 
totally know what sort of words would you like to say to the Bishop community that's listening to decision makers about the Royal Commission and about the really concerning issue of violence, abuse, neglect, and exploitation of people with disabilities? I would say two things. Firstly, it has been deeply humbling to hear and listen and read and receive all the information and, and evidence we did, and I'm grateful and extremely appreci- appreciative of people such as yourself and the thousands of others who engage engaged with that. That has been vital, and I say a huge thank you to everyone for that, and also a huge thank for the ongoing advocacy that you have done over decades to see this Royal Commission come into existence. And secondly, and lastly, it is my hope, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, that this report is a detailed blueprint, also acknowledging the differences or different views, and that also needs to help the conversation keep progressing to the ultimate aim, of course, an inclusive society for everybody. I could not agree with you anymore. I was prepared for your work over the last four and a half years. I know it would have been very, very hard at times. And thank you for your advocacy. Um, uh, even before and beyond the, the Law Commission, thank you for having on the show. Thank you so much, George for having me. This has been a wonderful opportunity to talk in more detail about the final report of the Disability Royal Commission and I'm really looking forward to seeing more of this in the future. Thank you. That's what I was Thank you. That's what we for on today's episode of Visual and Necessary. We really love the feedback, so please share your thoughts with us in the comment section below. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.